together. Uh, Father in heaven, now we come to your word and I pray that you would enable us to attend to it uh, because it is your word and that we would be humbled by it. First, that you would speak to us so directly and also give to us instruction on how we're to live. So I pray that we would hear this word, believe it, and you would grant us grace to follow it. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, James 5. I want to read beginning with verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it didn't rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruits. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death, will cover a multitude of sins. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So we're at the end. I simply, as I mentioned last Sunday, want to take up these last two verses, but I wanted to read the last section for its context just to see it. But I'll take up today, really, uh, the end of this passage. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wanderings will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So James is talking now about two people, one who wanders and the other who rescues. So we have wanderers and rescuers even in the context of a group of people that he refers to as brothers or really brothers and sisters, that is, the church. And he said there are some among us who are wandering or have wandered. So again, what's what's on James' mind here? Well, remember that he's been talking to us about what it means to be people who have faith in Jesus, not just simply people of faith, not just simply a community of faith, That's too vague. That's too ambiguous. People who have faith in Jesus, we must say. Lots of people have faith, maybe everybody to some extent. But the question is the object. And for us, the object of our faith is Jesus. As he's laid out for us in the scripture, the biblical, we could say, uh, Jesus. So, So he's saying that those people who have faith in Jesus are those people who have been brought forth by his word. You remember in chapter 1, verse 18, of his own will, he, that is God, brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his, of his creatures. And so he, he made us his own by the word that worked in us, that enabled us to believe. People who hear, verse 19, he said, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Uh, He says we should be people who hear quickly, primarily, not only each other, but hear God. And then we receive this word, verse 21, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. 
That's repentance, turn away from our old life and receive with meekness, humility, meekness, the implanted word which is able to save your soul. So this word that comes to us, he says, you're to hear it, you're to receive it with meekness, that is submit to it. And it's calling us to turn away from trusting in ourselves and that whole life and trusting in Christ and following him, you see. And so that's what it means to have faith. But he says, but what that really means, verse 22 then, is that we're not only hearers and receivers of the word, but we're doers of it. That actually impacts our lives, transforms us, changes us. We should be able to see that. That's why at the offering time, I'm able to say, well, our giving should be a reflection of the faith that we have. And it should bring us assurance to say, if I'm giving this out of love for Christ, then that is a way to show me that I really belong to him. Look, it's working. I am actually being generous in ways that I never would be other than because of the work of Christ. Giving is a blessing in that way to us. And so we're to be doers of the word, not just hearers. So then in verse 26, he says, If anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. In other words, if we really belong to Jesus, if this work has really happened, then it should affect how we speak. And if it doesn't, then we're just deceiving ourselves. If we can't, can't see some effect of this, this transformation, and have no desire to turn away from our sin and follow, then are we really? Then he goes on. Religion that's pure and undefiled before God. The father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. In other words, it should impact us. We should be compassionate people. We shouldn't be able to just turn away from needs, especially in the church, but any needs. We should be able to respond to those marginalized in the society, those who are most vulnerable, and to keep oneself unstained from the world, to turn away from sin and to follow him. So, so you get the picture that God has worked in us as we hear the word and now we respond to this implanted word with meekness, which means we submit to it, we believe it, we turn away from our sins, trust him, and actually then follow him. And we follow him because we've trusted in him. We can see it in our lives. Thus, James would go on with the classic expression that thus Faith without works, as he says, or faith by itself, it doesn't have works, is dead. So we get that. So that's, that's James' point here. So, so, so we realize that we should be in a fellowship of believers, a church, if you will, where people are receiving the word and living it out. But then either by way of observation or just by what he knows to be true in the context of church life, he says, what about those who wander from the truth. What about what about them? Well, the scripture speaks of them from time to time. You might remember reading through Paul's letters. He refers by name to some who have swerved, as he puts it, or wandered from the truth. And we can do this in, a, in two ways, at least. One is in what we believe, that is, we can swerve away from believing what is true, or, and, or, these two usually go together, by the way we're living. And either by what we're professing or by the way that we're living, it sort of reveals what's really in our hearts. And so James says, what about those those who wander from the truth? That is, uh, what we see is often people then uh, start rejecting the authority of Scripture 
in their lives. Well, the Bible doesn't really mean that. The Bible doesn't really say that. And as we see them drifting, if you will, or wandering away because they're not holding to the fact that the scripture really is the word of God. And it's, as we put it, our only rule of faith and practice. It's, it's the only thing that guides what we believe and it's the only thing that guides what we do in the context of our lives. We begin rejecting that. We begin to wander from, uh, from the truth. And perhaps what it says about Jesus and that he really is Emmanuel, God with us, that he's the word become flesh and dwelt among us, that Jesus, he really has come to save his people from our sins. And, and there's only one mediator. No other way, if you will. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But what we find with wanderers, they begin to drift away from that understanding, that sense that he is the only mediator between God and human beings. And Jesus can be that mediator perfectly because as God, he represents God to us. And as man, he represents us to God. So he's our perfect priest and he is also our sacrifice, that sacrifice which we need because we sin. So, so what we believe about scripture, what we believe about Jesus, what we believe about ourselves, that we were created in the image of God. And yet, Adam, our first father, fell from that, sinned, turned against, really, God in his ways to trust, really, his own ways. And we follow in his footsteps because being in him and thus we realize that we're corrupted and that we are condemned really because of our sin, the guilt of it. And we have no hope other than someone to save us and Jesus is that savior. And so when we begin to drift from that understanding of who we are as sinners in need of a savior, uh, then we begin to wander from the truth. And the gospel, when we, when we begin to drift from the truth of the gospel that Jesus is the only savior and he's a sufficient savior and there's salvation through faith in him, we drift from that, you see, we begin to drift, wander from the truth. So James questions, what happens when those who've been with us, we find them wandering and they could wander in the context of their own lives. Uh, morally, we see them making choices and living out their lives in ways that we wonder, how can you do that and believe that Jesus really is Lord? Perhaps as you understand marriage or sexuality, especially in our context of our culture in which we live, we see people wandering from the truth, following their own passions and desires. Letting their own passions and desires define who they are, you see. Rather than God defining who we are to be in him. Or whether it's the way that we speak or whether it's our leaving worship. Having no desire to, whatever that is that we, in our own lives, we've seen it in people. I'm sure you have people in mind that you say, I, I remember when they were believing and professing and walking with the Lord and now they're not in the context of their lives. And what about them? You may have been such a wanderer and now you're back. Maybe. So, James says, what about that? What about uh, 
wanderers. Well, this wandering is a serious thing. Uh, he, he says that uh, when this wanderer is rescued, he says that they'll save his soul from death. And that's a sense of spiritual death. It's not necessarily a physical thing, but save his soul from death. And will cover a multitude of sins. So all of his sins. So it's a serious thing, this, this wandering. Now, is he saying, James, is he saying... Uh, does this mean people profess faith in Jesus and then may be, have a doubt or maybe uh, sin? And, and the answer, of course, is no. He's not talking about that. That would be true for all of us. He's talking about those who are wandering away and, and, and seem to have no difficulty with wandering away, have no real sorrow for their sin, have nearly no desire, if you will, it appears, to, to follow Christ and, and to walk with him. We all sin. We get that. But when we do, you see, one of the assurances that we have that we belong to him is that we recognize that sin and we acknowledge that sin and there's sorrow for that sin and we confess that sin and we desire God to help us to turn away from that sin. That's assurance to us, you see. I always say a mark of maturity in a Christian is that when the time between you sin and you confess it shortens, that's a real sign of maturity because it means your heart, your conscience is sensitive to these things. And increasingly sensitive to these things. So we're not talking about that. We're talking about wandering. In fact, um, that word wandering uh, can mean a number of things or be translated a number of ways. Better to say it, I suppose, in the scripture can translate as being led astray. As in the the parable that I read earlier about the, the sheep led astray. And thus is stuck and needs rescuing. Or it can mean being wrong or being an error, being deceived. Uh, for instance, Jesus, in answering a question that the religious leaders of the day posed him in, in Matthew uh, chapter 22, verse 29, Jesus answered to them and he says, you're wrong. That is, you're wandering from the truth. You're an error. You're wrong because you neither know the scripture nor the power of God. I mean, what an indictment. This is no small thing. This is wandering as the result of really not knowing the scripture and not knowing the power of God. You're denying those things that the scripture is true and that God is powerful to work in people's lives. That's this, this sense of it. And then in chapter 24 in verse uh, 4, verse 3 really, Jesus is in this context is talking about um, the end, if you will, that's the question posed to him. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And notice how Jesus answered. He says, see that no one leads you astray. That's the sense of it. He says that there's, there's enemies at work leading you astray that's away he says for many will come in my name saying i'm the christ and they will lead many astray that is following a false messiah following a false christ coming in the name of the lord and saying this is the truth this is the way this is the life and it isn't and of course we see that all over even in what's called the church verse six and he says and you'll Hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed for this must take place. But the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines and earthquakes. And hurricanes in various places. 
I added in hurricanes. That's not in here, but I think it works. All these are the beginnings of the birth pangs. Um, And then he says, And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Because lawless deeds will be increased. The love of many will go cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. You see, What James has in mind is the word to persevere. What James has in mind is that there are enemies to come that will try to lead us astray, you see. And, and, and what he's saying is, when you see that happening, what should we, what should we do? When you see that happening, really, what should we do? And then in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 6, this expression is used again. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. The apostle writes, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. That is, don't be a wanderer. Because wanderers are like this. He says, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But... You were washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And he says, he says, it's, it, you're being deceived if, if you think that once coming to faith, you can continue to live as you once did. There's a repentance and a following. Perfectly, of course not. But there is an understanding of that that is sin. And that is wrong and that displeases the Lord and that's why Christ had to come and that's why I need a savior and so I need to be forgiven of these things. And when I sin, then there's this sense of of confession and repentance because my heart is now sensitive to these things and I'm new and I realize that 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 I can't be known to be or 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 this can't be the very heart of my life to be sexually immoral or an idolater or an adulterer. Or, or those who practice homosexuality, or a thief, or, 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 or greedy, or a drunkard, or a reviler, or a swindler. I, I realize that. So that's where the repentance comes. I go, yes, that's right. To think that I can continue on in that and all is well is a deception. It means I'm wandering from the truth. I get that. Do I still sin in some of those areas? Well, yes, we all do. But I recognize that I confess it and I go, that isn't how... I am to be. That is now God is making me. All things are new now. So, all of that. In Galatians, in chapter 6, again, similar kind of uh, expression using this word to wander. Galatians 6 and verse 7. Again, the apostle writes, verse 6, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Verse 7, Don't be deceived. That is, don't be one who who wanders from the truth. God isn't mocked for whatever one sows that he'll also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. He says, listen, if you think that the way you live your life doesn't matter, you're deceived. You're deceived. Don't sow to the flesh, sow to the spirit. You see, sow to the spirit. So we could go on, but I won't. But that's the sense of it, you see. That's the drama. That's why this is of such great importance as he writes that down, these things where we wander from the faith. We must be true to our profession of faith. 
You know, sometimes in, in marriage, for instance, uh, a spouse will say to the other, do you love me? Why? Well, probably because the other spouse hasn't been acting like they do. I mean, you know, we say we love our spouse, and, 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 and yet we sometimes can act harshly, or we can ignore, or not spend time with, or other things get in the way, and our spouse feels neglected, and he or she might say, do you love me? Now, in part, they, 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 I think she or he really does, but, but, but what I'm saying is, I'm confused right now. And see, that's the situation that we find when people wander from the truth. We, we, we wonder about them. <sighs> Are they really converted? Do they really believe? Are they really saved? However you want to put that. Do they really believe in Jesus? They say they do, but, 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 but. I hear how they talk about him, or I hear how they talk about the scripture. I hear how they don't talk about the scripture, or how they neglect the scripture, or how they're living. And so it's that situation that James is speaking of. And as he does that, he gives a word to us. And he says, the word to us is this. We need to go to them. That's implied here because in order to bring them back, we have to first go to them. There has to be some movement in that direction to go to them. And so the question is, who goes? And, and, and he could have said, elders. He's already mentioned elders. If you're sick, go to the elders, call the elders to pray for you. But he doesn't say that. He could have. There's elders in these churches. He could have said, tell the elders about this and let them go. He doesn't do that. So what he must mean is that if you know about it, go. It's everybody's responsibility, you see, at that point for for all of us uh, to go. And we realize then that that. This is a means by which God enables us to persevere. That is the fellowship of the church, the love of the church, is one of the means by which God uses to enable us to persevere. This thing we call the body of Christ. Now, God uses means. We need to understand that. We t- mentioned last Sunday that there are certain means of grace or, or, or ways through which the grace of God comes. And we, we listed them out. We talked about the word being preached and taught and read. We talked about prayers being made. And we realized that in the midst of these, these the word of God comes to give us grace and to strengthen us and to give us wisdom and to help us, you see. And, and prayer in the same way, to give grace to us, to help us as we express our our weakness and our dependence upon God in prayer, that he grants grace to help us, as the scriptures say, uh, to give mercy and grace in times of need. The sacraments, we, we come and we share in these, 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 these sacraments that the Lord has given to us, whether it's baptism or communion. And these give us grace to strengthen us, to help us, to continue to persevere, to, to move on. And the same thing with our fellowship, you see. We see here is, he's saying, one of the means by which God enables us to, to, to persevere to the end is, is us together, loving him and loving each other. Uh, the fellowship, he says, go, you see. Go, you see. When you, when you, there's a wanderer, go to that wanderer. Bring them, if you will, 
back to help them. And, and you know, these means are very, well, how do we say this, logical. Um, for instance, if you're a student, what's the means to be a successful student? It is not rocket science. Unless you're studying rocket science. But, but, but it, it isn't uh, rocket science. It, you, you, well, it doesn't take, you know, you don't, you don't need a whole course in how to be a good student. You just need to know, you know, you're supposed to study. That shouldn't surprise you. You should go to class. That shouldn't surprise you. You should turn in your assignments on time. That shouldn't surprise you. Those are means through which you'll be a successful student, right? If you're an athlete, what's the means to be a successful athlete? Well, well, you should go to practice. You should do what your coach says. You should work out. You should study the game. You should play it. You know, all those things. Again, that's not really hard, but we realize that those are logical. Those are means by you know, a healthy person physically. Again, you should eat well. You should rest. You should exercise. Right? You should stay away from this, that, and the other thing. You know those things. I mean, again, those, all of those are logical. The same thing for us as believers in Jesus. These are, these, these should be logical. That's why I mentioned last Sunday, you might not have a category in your brain called the means of grace. But if I ask you what enables you to grow in your faith, to stay strong in your faith, to persevere in your faith, I suspect you would say, well, the Bible and praying, you might miss out on the sacraments because you're maybe not thinking about that. But if you really thought about that, oh well, yeah, we do that too. And somehow or another, you'd say, well, I'm a part of this whole group of people. We're all walking with the Lord together. And thus, we, that must really help. <laughs> and I, mean, I can see it personally in my own life. The church, you see, um, uh, theologically keeps me, um, whether it's the old dead people that I read, uh, who are part of our fellowship, the great cloud of witnesses, if you will, or whether it's the... Our denomination that sets boundaries for us on on our theological orientation through the Westminster Confession of Faith. It helps me, you see, to stay. And and interactions with other pastors, interaction with our elders, interaction with our staff, interactions with you. The things that we say uh, and and other people hear, we talk about those things. Do you really mean this or what do you mean about that? And and I find myself being uh, kindly at times corrected and, 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 and caused to be more precise in how I'm saying what I'm saying and thinking what I'm thinking. All of that, you see, is beneficial. If I were out on my own, I would hate to think what I would think about what is really true. As I read through the scripture, I, I need others to interact with. So that my mind just doesn't go everywhere with that passage. So there are boundaries, good passages, in the context of the fellowship of the big church and in the fellowship of our, of our local church. And in my life, in my life as well. I mean, I had the privilege of growing up in the context of church. And I knew in the context of church that there were people who cared for me. And growing up, that meant everything to a quiet, insecure little kid. Right? I know church was the safest place besides my house, the safest place I could be. And I grew up with that, you see, and that helped me. And I watched people live out their lives and that helped me, that continues to help me. You are an incredible encouragement to me. Because as I know your lives and you know mine, and here we are still walking with Christ after all these years, you see. 
and some new to us benefit from the examples of others who have lived in faith through all kinds of situations in life. We bless each other, you see, in that way. And also in the context of holding each other uh, accountable. Uh, you know, as Karen and I have shared, we went through some difficult times, years two through seven. Uh, you know, when we say we've been married, how many? Um, 37 really great years out of 44. That's pretty, that's pretty good. Uh, so, you know, we had difficulties, like all of you have had difficulties, I suspect. And it was church that helped us the most. It was the people we were in fellowship with. We knew we had to work this out. We knew we had to persevere together. Because if we didn't, they would come after us. We knew that, you see. Uh, so church, you see. And that's, that's James' point here, you see. We need that. And, and one of the means of this perseverance is, is the body of Christ. shouldn't surprise us in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, we, we read about that where, where Paul writes about the fact that, that we're, we're a body together and we need each other. And so the foot can't say to the eye, I don't need you. Because if the foot just says to the eye, I don't need you, then the foot finds itself bumping into things all the time, right? And if the eye says to the foot, I don't need you, then, then the eye's going, I wish I could get there, but I just can't. And, and so we need each other, you see. And so he's saying that the Lord gives gifts to us. And we have to realize that in giving gifts to us, the Lord gives to you what someone else needs. And so if you're gifted in various ways, you find yourselves being able to help people in particular ways. If it's the gift of helps, it means that that, that you're supposed to help people. If it's the gift of giving, it means that he's going to give you more money than you need, whatever that means, and you're to give it. If you have a gift of teaching, you might understand stuff. And he says, well, don't keep it to yourself. Share it with others, you see. If it's a gift of mercy, don't just always feel good about yourself because I'm, you know, I'm merciful to myself. But no, 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 no. It means you're supposed to be merciful to others, you see. God will always give to us that which someone else needs. In fact, if you're praying for something that you don't have, it it's, shouldn't surprise you that God will give that, which you think you need, to someone else. In the body. And then in love, so point of these chapters in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, we're to give it. That's the point of it. We need each other. In and of ourselves, we are not adequate. Alone. To persevere to the end. We need each other. In fact, these means of grace come through one another. The word is often shared with us. Someone often prays for us. Or we pray with them together. We receive the sacraments with each other, not alone. So you see, all of these things come through fellowship. And now James is just simply applying that. says, what if somebody wanders away? Well, then go to them, you see. Now the question is, how do we go to them? Well, if you'll turn quickly to Ephesians in chapter 4, we'll see something. Ephesians in chapter 4. This is a passage, chapters 1 through 3. Paul lays out how it is that we're to, <clears throat> how it is that we're to, how it is that we come to faith in Jesus and what that means. Um, and then in chapter 4, he talks about how we're to live that out. And so, verse 1, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. That is, you've been called to follow Christ. 
to believe in him and to follow him. So now he says, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. Here's how we do it. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And so, you see, that's it. That's how we're to live. He's made us to be a body. So how do we do that? Especially when someone wanders from the truth. How do we try to maintain the unity and the bond of peace? How do we try to rescue that person, to bring them back, if you will, into the fold? How do they bring them back into the church? And he says, well, here's how you're to live. These characteristics should be true of you. Excuse me. Humility, gentleness, patience, and what we might say forbearance, that is bearing with one another in love, as as he puts it. Well, humility. You see, when someone is wandering from the truth and we go after them, if you will, we must be humble in that. We don't go after them thinking, oh, this could never be me. (laughs) How ridiculous is that, you see? We should go after them in love saying, this could very well be me. Because you see, humility is... First of all, understanding who we are in the presence of God. I'm just a creature. I'm utterly dependent upon him. And then we realize not only are we a creature dependent upon him, but we're also sinners. And so we've also sinned, each one of us. And so we realize that we need him to save us and to rescue us. And if we believers in Jesus, what we've admitted is he's rescued me. What we're admitting is that I didn't rescue myself. Well, what we're admitting is if he hadn't come to me like the shepherd getting the sheep, I would be dead in my trespasses and sins. But he rescued me. Now, once you've admitted that, you can't put yourself over above someone else. Because what you're admitting with that is, pardon the directness of this, but what you're admitting when you become a Christian is that the best I can do on my own is to deserve hell. That's what we all admit when we come to Jesus. This is what I deserve. If I give it my best shot, this is the best I can do. To be condemned. I need you to do the best you can do, which is save me. Which is live a perfect life for me. Which is die for my sins. Which is send your spirit to come and get me. To rescue me. That's what we're admitting. So when someone needs rescued, if you will, they've wandered off. We, we can only go in humility, right? How can we go with any pretense? How can we go thinking that we're better than they? We're not, you see. We're not. I've said this before, and, I'll, and, it's, and it's still true. That when I'm talking with someone who's sharing with me about their life, particularly about their sins... I can always build a bridge from my life to their sin. I may not have committed that sin in the same way that they did, or maybe not at all in that sense. It could be one that I haven't done. Uh, But I can always get there from here. I can always see myself in their lives. And trust me, I've heard... I don't know if I've heard everything, but I've heard most everything, I suppose. I can always get there. And so when we go, we go humble. We go gentle. Because you see, that gentleness or meekness is this sense is I know who I am before God as a creature and as a sinner. 
and, and, and I have no pretense, you see, as I come to you. I come in this sense, really, of, 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 of meekness, so I can be gentle. You know, Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain mercy. I know that I've received mercy, so how can I withhold mercy from someone else who's sinned? How, how, how can I come to them with, with anything more than Christ died for you? Trust him. You remember the parable that Jesus told about the man. We call it the parable of the unmerciful servant. But the man who owed more than he could ever pay, uh, more than he could ever pay if he lived a hundred lifetimes. And he was forgiven. But then he found someone who owed him, oh, maybe a half a year's worth of wages and he wouldn't forgive him. And that startles us and we think, how can he do that? How can he be like that? Well, that's the point. Once I admit that Christ has saved me, I'm the one that could never have paid the debt of sin and obedience or for sin that is obedience that I owe in a hundred lifetimes. In fact, if I had a hundred lifetimes to live, it would just get worse. Once I've admitted that, you see, how can I withhold that same mercy, you see, from another? Paul writes to the church in Galatia. We find it in Galatians in chapter 6. This, verse 1, he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. No, you're vulnerable in every situation. So there's, there's no I'm better than you kind of thing as, as we go, you see. We go in this sense of humility. We go in this sense of gentleness. We go this... We go this to this person in a sense of patience. They may not be happy to see you. They might not like what you say. In fact, you may leave the conversation thinking, rats, I shouldn't have said it that way. Oh, I really should have said this and not that. And, and you just have to be patient, right? Patient. Well, how can we be patient? Well, because God's patient with us, isn't he? How patient has he been with you? How patient has he been with you? Well, be patient then. And how can you be patient because you're not trusting in yourself. You're trusting in the Lord. And, and James has told us in James in chapter 5, verse, verse 10, he says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. So, so think of the prophets and what they had to go through, and they stayed steadfast. You have heard the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Be patient. Don't give up. Be patient. Now you say, well, I said don't give up. Does that mean you keep going and keep going and keep going and keep going? I don't know. Got to play that one by ear. Get some counsel. Think about it. Pray about it. Uh, I don't know how many times to go. I don't know when to stop going to someone. Uh, uh, I know when to stop praying for them, which is pretty much never. But going and talking about it, I, I don't know. I mean, I really don't. That's an art, not a science. That's a leading of the Lord thing. 
But be patient. And you can be patient because you know it's the Lord's work. And he had worked in you. And if he can work in you, if he can work in me, he can work in that person as well. Be patient. Speak the truth, if you will. In love. And be forbearing. Bear with each other. Continue on in love with that person who at least you once would have considered a brother or a sister. How should we receive him back? (laughs) With joy. That's why I love, I must confess, I love that little parable I read to you about the shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes for the one. The thing I love the best is that when Jesus said he'll take that sheep and put him on, put that sheep on his shoulders, rejoicing. I mean, you just, you get the sense that that shepherd is tickled pink that this sheep has been found. He's not mad at the sheep. He's just happy the sheep is found. And so he sacrifices, puts it on his shoulders because it's probably lame or he can't really trust it that much. So he takes it back where it's supposed to go and he puts it home. And he tells the other sheep, in this great, shepherds are a little weird, but, but, but he talks to the, I'm sure he talks to the other sheep and he says, this is great. Look at that, you know, and they have a party. They rejoice. And that's how we should be too. That's how we should be too, you see. And in fact, we can be that because the scripture tells us that um, uh, whoever brings back a sinner from his wanderings will save his soul from death. Wow. You say, what if the person was a believer and just sort of backslidden as we use that expression? Well, it's still good. Still brought them back, if you will. Because they can't continue in that state. If they continue in that state, who knows what's really true about their heart? So you brought them back, you see. And if it was an unbeliever, someone who just made a profession of faith and didn't believe, and they come back, that's great, you see. You saved their soul from death. And will cover a multitude of sins. Not just the one sin you might have been worried about, but every sin, you know, that's the good news. And, and they'll be covered. You know, you know, like when you paint something over with new paint, and when you really cover it, the old paint can't be seen through. And that's the point here. Maybe even better, fits better with our understanding about the work of Christ, uh, to, to, to cover something in, in the sense of paying for it. Like you pull out your wallet and you take out enough money or give a credit card or write a check, however it is, and you say, this will cover it. And once it's covered... It's paid for. It's done. It's zero then. Nothing more is owed. And that's this sense of of atonement, you see. But there's something else. We must remember, not only does the Lord cover this multitude of sins, but so does our love. You remember what Peter says. First Peter, he quotes the Proverbs. First Peter chapter 4, he says, Remember, love covers a multitude of of sins. And so you see, when someone comes back, we cover their sins too, which is to say we remember them no more. We can't forget them probably because we're not stupid. I mean, we just remember stuff. But, but, but we don't remember them. That is, we don't bring them up. We, we don't keep... We sort of look at them and we no longer think of them in the context of that sin. We don't remember it anymore. And they come back rejoicing. They come back to a place that is safe, you see. 
From time to time, people ask me when they think of these kinds of passages or church discipline, they say, Bill, does this happen in grace? I mean, when people wander away from the body, does anybody ever go after them and do they ever come back? And I say, sure, it happens more than when you know. And, and they say, well, why don't we know about it? And I will, why, why should you? I don't know. I'll be honest with you. This body is one of the safest places I've ever seen. Because we don't talk about these things. When people wander and come back, they're received. And everybody's happy about it. And most people don't even know that there was wandering and return. That's the way it should be, you see. We do this. We do this. Two final observations. That'll be done with James. First, this. It's fascinating to me that even though we all know that this is the Lord's work, that that he's the one who covers their sins and he's the one who forgives them and he's the one who really brings them back, James acts as if we're doing this. He says, and someone brings him back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. How can James talk like that? We can talk like that because we're the means God uses. If I could steal an expression from Martin Luther, we're the masks for God. God is masked in us when we go. He goes. Can't see him. You can only see us. That's why James can talk about it like he does. We're the means that God uses. And lastly this, I'll end with a quote. Well, I can put it like this. He says, the local church is a fellowship of mutual care in which each watches over the other's welfare in the things of God and is on alert to minister and rescue. The local church, that's us, is a fellowship of mutual care in which each watches over the other's welfare and the things of God and is on alert to minister and rescue. Thus that, you see, is who we are. So James, yes, faith, hearing and doing, but never forget We do it together. Let's pray. Father, I pray for me, for us, that we'd know this. That we would be a people that really cares for one another. Physical needs, yes, of course. Spiritual needs, yes, of course. And that we would watch out for each other. So we think even on this day of those whose lives are in difficulty, obviously, in the course of the life of our country, we see those picking up the pieces in Houston and those affected by the hurricane there. We pray for them, that you would bless them, keep them, help them. Uh, Many related to us there. Father, those who have been devastated and anticipate difficulties by the hurricane Irma, we pray that you would be with them. We, we think of Danny Rudman and his family in the Keys and evacuated from there that you would keep them and uh, the various ones in my own family and uh, many others not even, many of us known to us and not known to us, so be with them. For 
Jordan Tolfrey, uh, father, in the Coast Guard based off Miami. And uh, pray for her as she rides out this storm and as she is used and others with her to help those in need. Father, we pray uh, for the Hartzler family this morning as they grieve the loss of Lorinda's mom. And uh, we pray for their family. We pray for Marjorie Miller and her husband David as Marjorie's in the hospice care. And we pray for her that you would be with her, keep her. And with David as he ministers to her in these days. Father, for all of us, I pray that you would enable us to walk with you. And I pray that we would be a church that rescues wanderers. In humility and meekness and patience and forbearance. And to receive them back with great joy. And this I pray in Jesus' name.